The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. of the general situation. This morning I'd like to go on from there, in a sense, going right back to the beginnings of Greek philosophy and seeing how this works out. We have seen that man was made, as, made in the image of God and therefore cannot help but know God, not to stun theons, as Paul, knowing God. They have not kept him in remembrance. Therefore, the first thing that we say about everybody whom we are trying to man to win for Christ is that they are those who inherently built into their system have a knowledge unavoidably of God and of themselves. But secondly, that they are those who repress. Now this is obviously in Paul, hold under the truth and unrighteousness. Repress. They don't want to meet God. They don't want to see him in the world round about them. They don't want the world to be a revelation of God's creative and and uh, providential control. They don't want anything that speaks to them of the fact that they are creatures and ought to behave as such. They want to be independent. They declare they are independent. So then, sin means that man has declared his independence. We call it, for convenience, autonomy. It means that he says this world is up for grabs. It's not created. It's like I come here in this property and I know I see this sign on the front, Reformed Theological Seminary. That means that you people own this. I don't. I'm a guest here. I've got the best place to live, better than any of you have. Ah, for that's for the moment. I'm going to be chased out of here next week again. And then you'll take over again. Well, however, when sin came into the world, then man says, God, you don't own this place. Just take down your sign that you are the owner and that you can tell me how the thing works and what we ought to do with this and with that. You have nothing to say about it. This is like the wild prairie, the open, absolutely open, uncultivated reality, and it's up for grabs. Now, we have also a sign. We didn't have till just recently Westminster Theological Seminary and we light that up at night because we're gonna we're kind of afraid people are going to take it away and uh, so Westminster Theological Seminary when you come to Philadelphia you'll be welcome and we'll give you a room and we'll give you we'll feed you even but the point is please don't shoot any of our faculty members <laughs> don't dig up any of our shrubs or trees they belong to us don't you see well, now, the point is over here, the world is now set to be a grab bag. In other words, pure contingency, not interpret. There's no signs on it. I was once up in Campus of the Woods, IVF institution up in Canada, a little island in Stacy Woods that was in charge of the IVF movement, was the big shot around there. And uh, as it were, every tree had on it Stacy Woods. 
<laughs> I went one time to a where they make uh, beech nut gum. Every piece of gum, beech nut gum, beech nut gum. And you couldn't get into the place but seeing beech nut, beech nut, beech nut, till you were beech nut in the head. Now, don't you see? I was in a brickyard where they make bricks, Maynard, Indiana. Bricks, Maynard Brickyard, Maynard Brickyard, on every brick. Well, now, every fact in the universe has God's impression on it, his seal is on it. It is that which God has made it, and his name is on it, his claim is upon it, and you've got to handle it as such. God invited man in paradise to do anything he pleased with it, subject to the recognition that it was his property, and that they must be prophets under him. They must explore it, they must subdue the earth, they must uncover the resources and bring them to life. That is, they must be true prophets, but under God. They must be true priests. They may use all this, but unto God, sacrificing it to him. They must be true kings. They must subdue and work with their hands, but they must do it unto God. Well, now a man is now a prophet without a mantle, a priest without a sacrifice, a king without a crown. That is to say, he is his own God. He has wiped out, crossed out the big circle and says, now, I'm here all by myself. Now, that means that the world is just there, and that means facts are brute facts, not created facts. They're not interpreted facts. There are no claims on them. Nobody owns them. Nobody says that you can't do what you please with them. Whoever first takes them and does with them what, they, what he pleases. Now, how does he do that? Well, with this God-given intellect of his, this intellect by which he can think logically, and by which he thinks one in one as one thing is following the other. If this is so, then that must follow logically. Don't you see? Therefore, he uses that intellect in which by which to relate the facts. Now, when he does, does relate them, that that in itself is fine, because God says, "Look here, I've given you this task to relate the facts around you, about you, and within you." You must be physicists, and you must be psychologists, and you must be philosophers. That's what I want you to do. But you are to do it within the rules of the game, and the subject that you, the knower, is adapted for the object to be known, the world around about you, and yourself as the object of knowledge. And the object is adapted to the subject. I've made all things so they fit together, so it's for you to puzzle out. I want you to be engaged in that. But when you wipe out God, and then how do you then afterwards get those facts together? And that's what I meant by saying they are like beads, and there's an infinity of them, and they have no holes in them. They must all be strong, because if God has no plan for them, God orders whatsoever comes to pass and relates all things to one another according to this his plan. If that isn't there, which is assumed to be the case here, then of course, then man must string all the beads, and then he must do it by, in terms of the intellect that actually God has given him. He doesn't admit that God has given it him. He thinks he has it of himself. It's just grown like Tosti in this world. <coughs> he has come out of this world of chance, and then logical capacity has grown into him by chance. Now that in itself is an utter absurdity, that logic should be have sprung from chance, the capacity for logical reason. Well now, therefore we have the principle of 
autonomy, the principle of the non-rational or the purely contingent principle of individuation. That is to say, a fact is what it is for no reason at all, not because God has made it or God ordained it, but just inherently in itself. And that's pure irrationalism and pure indeterminism. Now, this is pure rationalism when a man, not subject to God's mind, reinterpreting things under God, but reinterpreting for the first time, as though, God, as though you were God, as though you had it in yourself, of yourself, to interpret all things. Now, that is rationalism. Now, rationalism and irrationalism got into the world at the same time, and they're always together. Now, we generally tend in the history of our thinking and of philosophy to think of rationalism as one kind of movement and irrationalism as another kind of movement. And then we say a man like Spinoza was a great rationalist. And today, people are, many of them, great irrationalists. There's a book called Irrational Man. Actually, of course, what happened was that irrationalism and rationalism are convex and concave sides of the same disk. You can never have the one without the other. In other words, if you say that the world is thus non-rational, then you must be a rationalist in order to be able to tie it together. Because then, it, then you don't have God to do it for you. Then you must be able of yourself to predict what will happen. That's what Satan said. When you eat of that forbidden tree, you will go not downward but upward. You will be like God. Now that was rationalism. And the other was irrationalism. And you see how they're together. Now that is, I think, very important because that helps you very deep, greatly to understand the whole history of Christian and non-Christian thinking. Now, I'd like to start with the Greeks this morning because it's Greek philosophy that you constantly hear about as a background for understanding of modern philosophy and modern theology. Now, when you read the books, the history books on philosophy, many of them start with Thales, Thales, and what did baby say? All is water, right? All right, now we think that's sort of funny. And why do we here in Jackson, Mississippi at the Reformed Theological Seminary have to be concerned with the question what Thales thought of what reality was like? And that was a sort of a funny notion that he thought was always water. Now, I understand you had a lot of rain last week. Maybe some of you thought Thales had a point. <laughs> but the point now is, why are we today preparing as Reformed Presbyterians, why are we concerned about failures? As I said, it was water. What does that mean to us? Well, I think it's very simple. Here we have two circles. Here we have reality is one now. God plus man it's all water. It's one stuff. There's only one surface. Man and God are one. The monistic assumption, the colossal, satanic, monistic assumption, that speaks for in this innocent sentence, all is water. And when the textbooks on the history of philosophy tell you, look, these Greeks were the first people who began to wonder. They were children of wonder. Up to this time, human beings had just naively worshipped this god and that god and all kinds of gods, they were polytheists. But now here, the Greek genius, 
saw into the fact that there's a principle of unity that underlies all this diversity and they were seeking for this principle, this attitude, this principium that underlay all things. Now, isn't it marvelous? Isn't that a step in the direction of recognizing what Moses said, the Lord thy God is one Lord. Let's say, praise the Lord. The Greeks are on the way. They're stepping stone to Christianity. Now, what is there of truth in this? Well, I would say the devil has got a hold of Thales so effectively that he doesn't even ask the question whether there are two kinds of being, a created being and a creature being. No, it's gotten into the minds and hearts of all apostate mankind by this time that you don't even ask about God the Creator anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't any longer know that they were. They were not to stump their own. They knew they were creatures. But they had to discover a way by which to make themselves believe that they were not creatures. If I here off the campus steal some things, then I'd like, if possible, to find some way by which to make myself believe there is no reformed, reformed theological seminary in the South here in Jackson. Well, don't you see, when he says all is water, what he does is this. He wipes out the difference between God and man. Don't you see, there is no difference in constitution between the creator and the creature. They are of one substance. Now, that's why I call it, and don't hesitate to call it, satanic. That doesn't mean that Thales was a bad moral individual. We believe that maybe through God's common grace, he was a decent, upstanding, suburbanite type of individual. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he was as well in the ghettos or in the slums. Maybe he was in the best home of town, maybe. Who knows? But that's not now the issue. In his heart, he believed, as did all the Greeks and as did all mankind, that there is one reality, therefore that there is no creator God. Now, that is absolutely fundamentally important, and you can see, more, we'll see the importance of it more clearly as we go along. But you see, now the devil has won, hasn't he, seemingly? The devil has won. He has said to Adam and Eve in paradise, you mustn't think of a creator above you who has said uh, that you are a creature and who has created this persimmons and who, is, and who has uh, said how this persimmons, the eating of this persimmons in the I-it dimension in the world of space and time is related to another fact in space and time. There is no such God. Now, he first had to, you know, they had to think about it and because God was speaking to them and so they had an awful time. I'm right here now, you see, I find it awfully hard not to think, to think that there is not a reform theological seminary because I'm right here and I see all your faces and I see Mr. Smith looking and he would be growling at me and I wouldn't be able to face him if I said there is no such institution but when they got used to it when I get back to Philadelphia again and then if I live another year or two and it gets vague in my memory again after a while when the prodigal has left the father's home you see and he's been away for quite a while now and he gets pretty close to the swine trough and he sees the pigs and he doesn't see the father every day. He gets sort of used to it. And so he makes himself, maybe that's true, I'm trying to find out. I'm just innocent, open-mindedly trying to discover what reality is. Now there isn't anything worse under the sun from the Christian point of view than this supposed idea of neutrality. 
that is satanic hostility to the living God, the Creator. That's what so-called neutrality is, in spite of the fact that it may be in the hearts of very decent, nice people. Well, now, therefore, all is water. All is water. We're getting, in, we're getting there. We're having now one God, aren't we? One God, one reality, see. Now, what? Who's next? Who's next in the line of Greek thinkers? Anybody? An ex commander. All right, very well. An ex commander. Huh? We have seen it first. An ex commander and examinee. So just taking away the books. Huh? Pardon? Oh, all right. Now, what did Brother An ex commander say all reality once? Anybody? Huh? Well, he, what is meant by that word up had on, indeterminate? And why did he bring that into the picture? Well, you remember this, that there were earth, air, fire, and water. Earth, air, fire, and water. Those were the supposed elements out of which the, the one, the world was made. There's earth, and there's air, there's fire, and water. Now, what they tried to do, of course, was to reduce them to one so they'd have a unity. In, of outlook, and that couldn't be done by observation, because as far as observation and sense experience is concerned, there are these at least these four different elements. So I use my intellect, because by the intellect I can get into the world beyond the world of sensation and imagine that there is one being, and that the differences between these elements is wiped out, or that they are reduced to one. Now, Davies said, "All is water." In other words, these are crossed out. They're reducible to water, to form. They're just forms of water. And now, that didn't seem very reasonable. It's pretty hard to reduce fire with hot, good hot fire. We had one here last night. They were burning up those things, building projects. And to reduce that to water, well, maybe it can be done. But it wasn't very sensible to say it. So an examander said, we have to go into the beyond. We have to have a supernatural principle something beyond what we see in order to explain the origin of these different things. We have a five-gallon can here of, of benzene, and here of kerosene, and here of gasoline, and here of beer. Now, um, <laughs> well, you can put in those cans what you like. <laughs> now, will you kindly tell me what, then I want one big can, that acts as the source of supply for my benzene, my kerosene, my gasoline, my beer. Now, will you tell me what's the characteristic of that stuff? I have one faucet here. Now, I didn't make that draw that very well. <laughs> and here's one outlet. And that, out of it, when I want gasoline, I turn that faucet and I get gasoline. I turn the same faucet. Now, when I wash dishes for my wife, there's a hot water and a, and a cold water faucet. But I know pretty well that back of them is a unified. There's a source for hot water and a source for cold water. It's just let in through a little separate pipe here. But here is only one outlet. Now there's one stuff that's in here that has to supply all four of these. Now please, what kind of stuff is that? Huh? It isn't earth. It isn't air. It isn't fire. It isn't water. What is it? 
I had breakfast with you. You were pretty smart this morning. <laughs> Tell me now, what's, what is this stuff? Well, what does the word apairon mean? It's quality less, without quality. It's all they can say, it isn't this, it isn't that, it isn't that. Karl Barth, Karl Barth says exactly that about God. Nobody knows what God is because God is wholly other, absolutely other than anything that you can say about him here, whether by affirmation or negation. If you say God is the first cause, you're not talking about God. If you say he is the final purpose, you're not talking about God. Anything you say, you're sure to be dead wrong. Now, therefore, to explain the world, you must explain it in terms of a principle which is wholly other than anything that we sense over here. Well, now it's beginning to dawn upon you what the difficulty is going to be. If you first have to appeal to a principle of which you know nothing, and that principle of which you've just said you know nothing, has to be the source of explanation of the things that you see, it gets pretty complicated, doesn't it? Well, that's the problem they are up against. And we're not going to stop reminding them of it. That is the point that is... We old-fashioned Christians believe in God on the basis of authority that he has made the, the world and that Christ says he is the Son of God and that we must accept on faith what he tells us we are. And then we want reasons. And we want reason to explain uh, to us that God exists and to prove to us. And we want, we want to submit the authoritative word of God to our standards of interpretation. All right, and then they say, that's ridiculous. Your two-circle theory is ridiculous because there is between your God and you an incomprehensible, there's mystery between. We say, yes, there is. We accept God is not fully comprehensible to us. All right, we say, you don't want that. So let's see how you do things. Well, this is how he does things. He starts with man not being a creature of God. He starts with the world the facts of it not created and not ordered by God. And he starts with an attempt to logically understand it, and he ends up with understanding nothing. <laughs> That's the, I mean, he has to appeal to a principle of which he himself says that he knows nothing. Well, that's the... And then you read that in the textbooks, and then people will say, well, isn't it wonderful how Greek the philosophy is a preparation for the gospel, and how they and many of the early church fathers thought that was the case, and how first we have, therefore, unity, and that's better than pure plurality and pure mon This is monotheism, and this is the supernatural. <laughs> and you put that in some good ordinary textbook and and then good people, Christian people, Orthodox people, fundamentalist people will read that and they have to try to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. We see that here's God's overruling providence leading people on toward the coming of the Christ. Well, let's look at the third one. Anaximenes. What did he say? All is air. Right? All is air. Now, why did he say that? Well, he thought it was a little easier earth air, fire, and water, to reduce it to air, because air, you know, can be compressed, and air can be diffuse, and he thought, well, it doesn't interest me one bit to say whether it's air, or earth, or fire, or water. 
what I'm interested in is that he said all is there, and that he says all is in all is this, and that he said all is this, all is one, all is indeterminate, all is water, or all is air. In other words, all of them assumed that all reality is not what the Bible says it is. It is not divided into God's being and man, the world, and the created being, but all is one being. And therefore, that wipes out the creator-creature distinction in the case of all of these early men. Now, these people, these early ones, earth, air, fire, water, were what they usually said, hylozoists, or materialists, earth and air and water. And we say, isn't it kind of bad, you know, they, uh, these God is dead people, we kick them because that's bad for them to say that God is dead. And there you've got a mechanist psychologist and a materialist philosopher. Here you've got Bertrand Russell, and what a low-down individual. And here's Freud with his psychology, and we don't want those things. But when we get further along, we get more spiritually spiritual interpretations, and certainly they are closer to us and to our Christian position, are they not? Well, let's see who are next. And Exagoras was next. At least, oftentimes, he's an Exagoras. What did he say? All is news. All is intellect or mind. Glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Socrates said, I went through all of these people and they were low materialists and they interpreted the reality that is higher in terms of the reality that is lower and we don't want that. We want an interpretation of life that takes the lower aspects of it and interprets them in terms of the higher aspects of it. And when I heard about this man in Exagoras that he said that all is mind, I followed him, he says, as though he were a god. I thought I'd got released from the problematics you see, I had an awful time with myself to reduce earth and air and fire to water. I had an awful time also with, with the Aperon idea because you can't have and not have. You can't have an infinite indeterminate something that is the source of the determinate. I had an awful time, but now I thought that I had the solution to all my problems through this noose idea. But then, then again, it's all noose. In other words, it's all one spirit. Reality is spirit. Absolutely abstract spirit. And there's no matter, and no matter whether there is matter, because, <laughs> don't you see, all reality is at bottom, it's still one. <coughs> well, that didn't help Socrates very much. Then you go on to the next one. How about Parmenides? What did he say? And... <coughs> And Parmenides said, all is static, all is changeless, all reality is one, and static being, one's changeless, eternal, changeless being. <coughs> and then, over against Parmenides, you have Heraclitus, and what does Heraclitus say? Yes, Pantare. Everything flows. Now, here were two antagonistic points of view. All is one, all is eternal, all is changeless. But notice that both of them, again, claim all. In other words, what they have in common is the much more important thing from our point of view. 
because, you see, they have in common the idea that there is no creation out of nothing. Now, Parmenides said, all is one eternal because the intellect requires this. With our intellects, we must interpret reality, and reality must be interpretable exhaustively by our intellects. There can't be anything left over that we cannot exhaustively relate to all the things that we see. We must have, therefore, a reality which is absolutely penetrable so that you have blocks, maybe, but you can control it from this point. You can control that. The whole thing is necessarily, all things, aspects are necessarily related to one another. Now, that's what the intellect does. And the intellect of man controls what can or what cannot exist. Now, he assumed that not God's intellect, we say as Christian, God's mind, God's purpose, controls what exists in the world and what can exist. For us, God, the creator God, the controller God, is the source of all possibility. Nothing can exist in the world that isn't according to his plan. That's the very idea of God's plan. But now that is all crossed out. And now here the human mind takes the place of the divine mind and says the human mind can determine what can and what cannot exist. The human mind is made legislative. Now certainly in a Christian, in our position as Christians, the, the divine mind is legislative. He said, look, you eat of that persimmons and you will die. Those are the relationships that I have placed, and for you, that is necessity. That is, that's the way it will be, because I have said it will be that way. I have made it that way. I have ordained it that way. And that's the way it therefore is. Well, don't you see here, having rejected that approach, which is inherent in the situation, man being the creature of God, and man having listened to the devil, Therefore, this was already the position that was inherent in the earliest, all is water, all is up and on, all is air. That is, man has his intellect, which is inherently the same as the divine intellect. There is no difference between the creator having an intellect that legislates and the creature having an intellect that perceives and reinterprets. On this basis, man is the between the creator having an intellect that legislates and the creature having an intellect that perceives and reinterprets. On this basis, man is the original interpreter. There's no difference any longer between God, the original interpreter, and man, the derivative reinterpreter. First the receiver and therefore the reinterpreter. That's all wiped out. The intellect is one, the divine and the human intellect. Now that's the assumption, the colossal assumption that underlies all history of all non-Christian philosophy. Up to very up to this very moment, along right up to the irrationalists as we speak of them, Sat and the existentialists, as we shall try to point out. However, much far they seem to have departed from this. This is the paradigm, as it were, of the approach of all non-Christian thinking, that the intellect of man is legislative for what can be. Reality, they say, must be what I say it can be by logical manipulation. 
Now, there was no working out yet of the law of contradiction. That comes a little later with Aristotle. But for all intents and practical purposes, Parmenides was already using the law of contradiction as a law of thought in order to mean, by means of it, to legislate for reality. Now, in modern times, we'll see that Spinoza is the one that carries this through further than anybody else does. And therefore, he said, the order and connection of things is the same as the order and connection of ideas. Well, here, the order and connection of things and of ideas are not only parallel to one another, but they are identical with one another. And therefore, he said, there is no creatio creation out of nothing. There cannot be. Finally, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian position is as to what can and what cannot be. It isn't just of what is and what isn't, but it's basically the question of who controls the situation, God or man. Well, in this basis, on this basis, there cannot be a God who has created the world. There cannot be, because it would be contradictory to say that there is. He says, all being has been from eternity. I can say that, he says, because I cannot think of anything that hasn't been. I cannot think of nothing. If I think of nothing, it already is something for me. Don't you see? Hegel later on, many years later, said, close your eyes and think of non-being and of being. Now, what's the difference? If you have just pure being and pure non-being, they're equally empty concepts. There's no content in the being notion any more than there is in the non-being notion. So they're interchangeable. That means they're for nothing. Well, I start with the idea of being as being therefore an eternal, changeless something, and nothing is nothing, and nothing comes out of nothing. Therefore, there cannot be anything new. There cannot be anything. Addition to the being that is, all being that bees, bees from all eternity. <laughs> the thing that Parmenides now Parmenides is worthy of special attention because his thinking is the form that people have followed now come uh, ask any questions if you want to while I'm talking comes Heraclitus and he said ah my lieber brother <laughs> that's absolute nonsense all being is one being we can all see the changes here, can't we? But you see, he went to the other extreme and he said, all is flux, all is flux. You see, they have to have one principle and either all is static or all is flux. If a man was a flux man, he was an all flux man. <laughs> if, he was a, if he was a static man, he was all for staticness. He reduced all change to absolute changeless. Well, that stands to reason. They were looking for unity. They must not have to face one kind of being that isn't exhaustively penetrable by the intellect because then out of that source something might come forth that might do you harm. You must control the whole situation. It's monopoly idea. There must nobody have to any, uh, make a few dollars as his own little business. You want it all. Well, here... Therefore, Parmenides wants it all, and Heraclitus wants it all. All is flux. Now, of course, you can see how that destroys the obviousness of reality. Here, certainly there's change. At the same time, also, certainly there's a measure of permanence. You can't reduce all things to flux, neither can you change, reduce 
all things to staticism, to one eternal changeless being. Well, that we'll talk about later on too. Now this is the first two main blind alleys. All is static. You run into that and you're, you're stopped and you're dead. And you are static. You've been from all eternity except that you aren't a you and aren't separate because you are one of that being, one changeless being. Therefore, you haven't had any self-independent, self-conscious individual existence ever. At least, makes no sense even to say that you have been from all eternity. You just say being is from all eternity. And then you don't say that anymore and then you close up your eyes and you say nothing. That is to say, that's the result. Predication stops. Intelligent speech no longer goes on. It's silence. It's the silence of the darkness of night and it's the desert. All is absolute dead being. Heraclitus, all is flux. Before this, someone said was earth and the other said was air and the other said fire and water. And they didn't change into each other, these elements. They were stubborn. Water wouldn't change into fire. Fire wouldn't change into water. That's his Heraclitus. That's what they do. He made this what he thought was tremendous discovery. That fire changed into water. Opposites do change into each other. And there's where he found the unity. The flow by which opposites change into one another. And he found the unity between fire and water. He says, by going beyond sensation. When you see fire and you see water, they don't look as though they will change into each other. But intellectually, you think of a unity in which they all, they're all one, in which we're all. That's final union, church union of all beings. <laughs> don't you see? That includes everything and everybody, all human beings, and that includes all reality. All is one meaningless flux. Well, now, here you see... Already you begin to see what it means when Paul said that hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. It certainly is foolishness to say that all reality is one stark identity. It's absolute foolishness to say that all reality is one flux. Well, how are they going to escape it? How are they going to escape it? Well, now then, let's go on beyond them and say, see what happened. Here where the sophists. They were the God is dead boys. <laughs> uh, all is, man is the measure. Man is the measure, they said. They lived at the time of Socrates, you know, and Socrates had a lot to do with them. And uh, they said, look, this, the greatest thinkers, Parmenides, Heraclitus, they cannot tell us what reality is. They contradict each other. One says it's all flux, the other said it's all one static being. So we know there is no truth. Therefore, the greatest men have tried to find out what reality is about. None of them have been able to discover it. We have two main positions, all this flux, all this static. Therefore, let's just say, let's be practical. By man is the measure, they meant, oh, let's be decent suburbanites. There is, there is no law, no eternal law. Thou shalt not kill. Neither on the Parmenidean view, because there's nobody to give the law, there's nobody to receive the law, they're all one. Neither on the, nor on the position of Heraclitus, because there's no law giver and no law receiver either. 
Therefore, thou shalt not kill. Now, it's a, there is no knowledge in nature, fuse, that indicates why we shouldn't kill. Therefore, but there is a good reason for practical purposes that we shouldn't kill each other off. We'll have a lot better time, all of us, if we don't. <laughs> in other words, for practical suburbanite living, it's a decent thing not to kill too much. <laughs> and, uh, or too frequently. Or to beat up your wife too often. Once a week is all right, they need that. <laughs> Don't beat up your wife too much, too often. Now, man is the measure. Practical experience. Now, this is basic skepticism. This is the first wave of skepticism, of expressed skepticism. Of course, skepticism is already involved in the position that fallen man takes. Man doesn't know anything anymore once he forsakes God, his creator. How can he get two things together unless they have been already brought together from all eternity in God's plan? Therefore, this is the first expression of skepticism. And then you get Socrates over there who comes in this period and he wants to help the poor boys out and he meets these different skeptics and he talks with them and then he says, well, there must be some more absolute truth and I know it is true that Parmenides couldn't find it and Heraclitus couldn't find it, but perhaps they went at it the wrong way. Perhaps truth is within us and we have built within our reason a connection with eternal, changeless intellect, ideal truth somewhere. And so Socrates said there must be universals. You say there are only particulars. And that uh, it's up to everybody to want to live the way he wants to live. I mean, there, nobody has the right to make laws for anybody else. But there must be more to life than that. It, this would ruin everything if we put it in practice finally, this individualism. So there must be some universality to it. And that must be in the mind. And you remember that we spoke of Socrates the other day when he said he wanted to see the holy to be what it is in itself. It must be within us, in the human intellect, in the subject, without reference to what it is out there in the material world. What reality is. I want to see what the holy is in itself. And I don't want to get information about it from God's we're past that stage. Polytheism is past, and we now know that reality is one. And so we don't want uh, that to fall back on the traditional position of Thales and Axamander and Eximenes, Parmenides and Heraclitus. That's true. We want to enter upon a new principle of interpretation by which we see that in the human mind itself there is a, the criterion, the standard of truth and that therefore man doesn't need to have a so-called objective, independently existing something to which he is subject as to a law. He has the light within himself. Now, this is what Socrates said, and you remember that Socrates had to drink the hemlock cup, and he believed in this, and Plato comes after him, and Plato was his great admirer. 
uh, one of the most encouraging things that I've seen on the campus here where I've been eating with these boys. I think it's Mr. Green owns a book, The Philosophy of Plato, or The Dialogues of Plato. And I thought I was in another world when I saw that over right here in Jackson, the students are engaged in the study of Plato. Well, <laughs> anybody a real inspiration, don't you see? Well, what did Plato say? Well, Plato said, you are right, Father Socrates. You are absolutely right. Now, let's do it this way. Heraclitus said all his flux. No, there isn't that. He's right up to a point. All space-time things, they flow, and they flow into one another, and there's nothing can be said about them. But Parmenides is also right, and he's more right than his Heraclitus. All reality is up there. Now, even Anaximander said that it's in the beyond that we must look for a principle in terms of which to interpret this world. Now, this is the real world up there, the real, the absolutely real, and that's timeless. And now, if there is genuine, absolute knowledge, he said, epistemé, that's real, true knowledge. But we're down here. Now, with our intellect, you see, we are divine. We have fallen. See, there has been a fall. Now, not that we know anything about it, like in the Adam and Eve story, that we were there and we were self-consciously disobeying a law that God, our Creator, gave us. There is no place for the Creator-creature distinction in this philosophy. But... So far as our intellect is concerned, it thinks about changeless, eternal laws. So far as our uh, will and emotions and things like that, what's under the midriff, suppose you have this as your message, what's under the midriff, he's one with a foxes. What's above the midriff is intellect, he's one with the divine. Now that is what is meant by the primacy of the intellect. The primacy of the intellect means that man's intellect makes him so far forth divine. And therefore, what is knowledge? Well, knowledge is, as Plato, a numbness, a remembrance. That is to say, we remember, not actually as though we individually remember having been there. Oh no, that's all pre-conscious and pre-existence. And you remember Oregon, the church father, talked about the pre-existence of souls? Well, he gets that, of course, from Plato. But our knowledge is basically remembrance. He has one dialogue in which he deals with this in particular, in which he has Mino, dialogue is called Mino, the slave boy, and the slave boy knows arithmetic without much, with a little prompting. He can do sums, he can do arithmetic. He can relate figures to one another. Where does that slave boy get that ability? He's never been to school. He's had no training. Can't be explained in terms of anything that's happened. <coughs> up here. Well, it must be explained then in terms of the fact that he has an a priori equipment that is a, an equipment within his mind that's inherent in him, that's innate in him, that's not acquired, it's not something that's come He's come by by an accumulation of effort, but it is something that he was born with. So that innate equipment, our knowledge is innate, is inherent, is a priori, prior to experience. 
Now, therefore, knowledge is in that sense remembrance. Remembrance. All right, let's see how it works out the other way. If you remember that when Socrates was about to die and he had about just about to drink the hemlock cup and you see the picture there in one of the dialogues and Socrates is there and Santippi's wife has been sent away because he has to drink the hemlock cup so he doesn't want Santippi around. And Simeon is there, that's Simeon, and that's Thebes, a couple of his disciples and other boys are around, and they say, well, now they're speculating. You think that when I die pretty soon I'll live some more in this other world? Well, one of them, who is a materialist, he says, no, I don't think so. He's the scientist, you see. Simeon is. So he says, I don't think, Sock, that you're going to live any longer. Uh, I'm sorry, Master, but I think this is the end of you, because you can see that in the waves of the ocean, they disappear, and that's the end of them. Individuality is just something that surges up and disappears. All reality is flux. Heraclitus, I think, was right. Well, and Sebi says, no, my dear Master, I think you're going to live. And... Uh, I wouldn't hesitate to drink this hemlock cup because I think you be in the other world. In fact, I think what's happening is that this life, the proper attitude is to this life is to try to get away from it. Die to get away. Soma, Sema. The body is the tomb. I was walking down the streets of Princeton Seminary one time with Dr. Voss, or I met Dr. Voss, and he said, Vantel, Soma, Sema. What does that mean? Well, I didn't know. That the body is the tomb. Well, what did Plato mean by that? Well, we are unfortunate. We have dropped out from that other world down here, and we're in the flesh, and this body is our tomb. Now, that's the equivalent of what Paul means, not the same thing. It's the exact opposite thing in religious significance, but it's formally similar to what Paul means, that we're in the body and absent from the Lord. Well, he says, therefore, he says, as Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, you see, Plato said, Soma, Sema, to die is gain because, don't you see, I'm going to be built into the old block again. <laughs> now, is that gain? Is that gain? That's immortality. That's Plato's argument for immortality, that you will be lost, subsumed again, taken up into, frozen back into the old eternal being, changeless being, which means that this being that you had down here was not really, honest to goodness, real being. It was only a sort of a half being. It's half, down here is non-being. And you are what you are because non-being is mixed with that being. And Heraclitus' pure change, non-being is mixed with that pure being of Parmenides. And so you're sort of a mixture down here. The upper half of you, the intellect part, is the best part of you, and that gets you higher in the scale of being, and that's why, as far as you are intellect, intellectual, you participate in deity, and all is well. You see, no creation, no sin, no need of a savior. Christianity couldn't be tied onto this place. It isn't, it isn't true, which the books tell you. Many of them tell you that Platonism is a good preparation for Christianity, don't you see? Or that Platonism teaches us theism, belief in one God or in a God, and that Christianity adds unto it. Now, are there any questions at this point? We'll go back to Plato in a minute. Do we now have five minutes?